This is They Create Worlds, episode 81, The Meeting of Space War. Welcome to the new year at They Create World. We're here still celebrating on January 1st. I think that is January 1st, right? Yes, this is absolutely the 1st of January when this very special episode was recorded for you, the listener. Right. So I got our glasses here. I got something to drink. It's sparkling grape juice. Yes, well, we do have a podcast to do. We're not doing drunk history. No, drunk video game history. That's a whole different... Someone else can do that. Yes. Well, anyway, we'll just celebrate here. And, of course, we have ceremonial drinking glasses. They are actually somewhat ceremonial. I mean, you'd have called them that even if they weren't. But they do seem to be from a wedding. Not our weddings. We're not married. No. To anyone. Least of all each other. All right. Here we go. Cheers, Alex, to the new year. Cheers. Anyway, welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and that guy drinking over there is Alex. Hello. It's a day of parties, isn't it, Jeff? It certainly is a day of parties. I mean, we're celebrating the new year here, and you were recently at a party back in November. Very fancy party. As we alluded to at the end of the last episode... I am working with the Smithsonian Institution on a lovely little project called the Video Game Pioneers Archive. The uh, leader of that project is the founder of Bethesda Softworks, famous for the Elder Scrolls series of games, Mr. Chris Weaver. I am essentially his chief researcher. What we are doing is we are identifying and interviewing the pioneers of the computer game industry. I can't tell you what a pioneer is. We don't have a definition like that. It's more like the old Supreme Court definition for pornography. I know it when I see it. But we have, over the past couple of years, been uh, identifying, targeting, interviewing important people in the history of video gaming. Ooh, now that we've done the Space War ones, we've probably done about a dozen altogether. We're shooting these at the very highest quality with a professional production crew. Uh, we're doing them in video. Well, I mean, we're doing them... With visuals. I mean, we're not shooting in video. And most of the interviews uh, go on for uh, about six hours or so, though some of the ones we just did the Smithsonian were shorter. So far, uh, we've done the three important people in the founding of Atari. We've done Nolan Bushnell, Ted Dabney, whom we were able to interview just two months before he passed away. Uh, As soon as I learned that he was terminally ill, I immediately emailed Chris Weaver and was like, because we discussed interviewing him before, and I said, if we're doing this, we have to do it now. And we did. Uh, And we also then interviewed Al Alcorn. So all three of those guys, uh, we've interviewed a few early computer gaming pioneers like Don Daglow and uh, Richard Garriott. And in November, we had the great privilege of reuniting the seven living people who had anything at all to do with the conception, programming, playtesting, creation of Space War which is a game we've talked about a few times before on this program. 
And I imagine the video is going to be available at some point, hopefully on the Smithsonian website and at least edited version for certain exhibits and stuff, correct? That's my understanding. Now, I, I have to caveat everything by saying that even though I'm Chris's chief researcher, my interaction on the project is basically entirely with him and our interactions are basically just on the research, forming questions, interviewing people's side. So I can't say with a great deal of detail what's going on in terms of the, the marketing, the presentation, all of that good stuff. Uh, this is being done by the Limelson Center, which is an organization within the Smithsonian Museum of American History. My understanding is, is that they are in the process of designing a video game history exhibit that will go on the third floor of the museum. Right now, they have a couple of random things on display, but there's not like a focused video game display, but that's going to change. I think some snippets of the interviews will be included as part of the displays on that. That's certainly what they've done in other parts of the museum. If they have interviews with somebody, they've incorporated some of that into the display. The interviews themselves, uh, I do believe, will be made available, presumably on a website of some kind. No timetable for that uh, that I'm aware of, because again, that's, that's not my side of things. But it's an exciting project. Many of the people we're interviewing have certainly been interviewed before. We are trying to identify areas that haven't been covered as much. I mean, obviously, we're going to cover some of the same old stories because you have to, because this is meant to be the one-stop shop for a person's recollections of their time in founding the industry. But we try to dig into some little nooks and crannies that other people have not. In the case of Space War, though, this is much more special because, uh, well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, Many of these people have never sat for any kind of retrospective interview before. Some of them were talked to for this and that. A lot of them were talked to for the book Hackers by Stephen Levy back in 1984. Uh, a couple of them I had interviewed on my own. A few of the others had been interviewed by other authors or whatnot on their own. But it's kind of the first time that there's been this comprehensive interview of all of them. And there are a couple of them that I don't think have probably ever really been interviewed about Space War before. So that was exciting. Uh, the other exciting thing is that we used this as the true kind of kickoff for this entire archives. I mean, we've been doing these interviews and whatnot since like 2015, uh, very on and off. But this is the first time that we've kind of presented to the public an event, uh, a gathering, a big uh, happening, if you will. So what we did is we had them all down for two days, these seven people, um, whom, of course, we'll go into more detail on as the episode continues. And uh, two of them had already been interviewed earlier on the West Coast. Uh, that would be Steve Russell, who was kind of the chief programmer architect, the glue that kind of held the entire operation together. Uh, and then Peter Sampson, who was responsible for one of the major features within the game, the so-called expensive planetarium that, again, we'll discuss in more detail later. Uh, so they'd been interviewed already, but the other five had not. So we did oral history interviews with all five of them, all ranging between about an hour and two hours, depending on the individual. And then we had a big event where a panel discussion uh, that Chris Weaver moderated, where they got up on stage and told the public about uh, creating the game. I was involved as well in, in the organization of the panel discussion. I mean, I wasn't on stage. I'm a behind the scenes guy on all of this, but kind of the flow of the panel Chris Weaver and I went through together. And it was open to the public. 
but we also invited a large number of other video gaming pioneers to attend the event. So we probably had the total event was probably over 200 people. And of that, I would say probably 50 to 60 were people that were involved in in the very early days of the industry. I couldn't tell you who all was there because I didn't see everybody, but Eugene Jarvis was there, uh, creator of Defender. We had uh, David Lebling there, Zork and Infocom, David Crane, co-founder of Activision. Somebody told me the Miller brothers were there from Myst, uh, though I unfortunately didn't have a chance to introduce myself. Uh, Richard Garriott was there and on and on. I mean, quite a few more. One that I was very uh, happy to have there personally, whom I invited, was uh, Howell Ivey, who is most well known for the very controversial game Death Race. We haven't really talked about Howell's career on this podcast yet, but he was one of the very early engineers in the arcade scene, and he was very innovative in that space. He was using uh, ROM memory and, and RAM memory back when that was a novel thing. I mean, now we think, okay, so we put ROM in a game, big whoop, doesn't everybody? Well, No, (laughs) everybody does now, but in 1974, not everybody did. (laughs) And uh, I'd interviewed him, and I wanted to make sure some arcade people were represented as well, and so I invited him and got to to talk to him for a bit uh, as well. So an absolutely uh, phenomenal event uh, that we'll probably touch on a little bit more as we go on in, in the episode as well. I imagine through just the whole event itself, it really brought some new facets and facts together, enlightened various more obscure aspects of how all these people interacted in the creation of Space War. Oh, exa- absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting because this is literally the first time that all of those people were ever in a room together. And the reason for that is that there were essentially two phases in the creation of space war there was the conception phase people sitting around thinking what can we do and then there was the implementation phase actually doing it all you see it was one group of friends that did the conceptualizing together and then it was a separate circle that did all the implementation together so there's actually some people that never intersected with each other before because even back then they were separate from each other and that's probably a, a good way to kind of segue into starting talking about the game, uh, which, which we're also going to do in this episode. Space War came about entirely as a way to demonstrate what could be done on a new computer. This was a period of time when computers were largely found only in big corporations, the government or in educational institutions, academia, not even high schools at this point. High schools would start getting access to time-shared systems just a few years later, but when I say educational, we're talking entirely college. Major universities only, even then. Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Not a community college or anything. (laughs) We're talking name recognition colleges. Exactly, no, good point. And at the time, most computers were still executed programs by what we call batch processing. In those days, you didn't have multitasking, preemptive or otherwise. You didn't have what came to be called time sharing, where multiple people could use the resources of the same big computer at the same time. A computer was this big, hulking, expensive thing that you would only have probably one of around. It could run one program at a time, and that's it. So what you would do in those days is you would punch out your program 
on cards. It could sometimes be on paper or magnetic tape as well, but the kind of classic and traditional way of doing it was on punched cards. And your program would be put in a queue with a bunch of other programs, with a whole batch of programs. And then the operator of the computer would run through a bunch of programs, just one right after the other, and spit out results for all these programs one right after the other. And you hoped that you didn't make any typos in your program, because then all you'd get is an error, and then you'd get your program back, and you'd have to go to the back of the line and resubmit it again after you corrected it. That's what computing was in most of the world, or most of the developed world, most of the world that had computers, in the 1950s and early 1960s. There was a new paradigm that was beginning to come into being in certain corners as the 1950s progressed, and that was real-time computing, which is the type of computing we do today. I think we've talked about this before in our Galaxy Game episode when we talked about Space War a little bit, I'm not sure. But in a real-time system, it's, it's how we compute today. It's you do something on the computer and it responds to your feedback so quickly that it feels instantaneous. You hit the T key on your keyboard and a T appears in your word processor. Voila! Real-time computing. But real-time computing at this time didn't mean interactive computing. It didn't mean personal computing in the way that we think of it today. The real-time systems were largely being used to control big, complex systems. We're talking air traffic control systems. We're talking the U.S. early warning system for attack from foreign powers, from airplanes or missiles. So real-time computing was starting to become a thing. But even real-time computing, it was, it was to control things. It wasn't you sitting at a terminal or at a keyboard or at a personal computer and doing something yourself, just you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But there was a guy named Ken Olson who worked at the Lincoln Laboratories at MIT, where they were building one of these big, huge control systems. Started out as Project Whirlwind and then became Project Sage, which were the gigantic computers that were used to control the early warning system in the United States. Ken Olson was working on those projects, and he thought that with the coming of the transistor, which was, uh, had been invented back in 1947, but was only in the mid-1950s becoming small, fast, and reliable enough to be considered as something you would put in a computer. He saw the coming of the transistor as something that would allow for an even more personal interactivity with a computer, something that scientists or engineers could use to, instead of running punched cards through a machine, just sit down at a computer or at a computer terminal and and work out their problem and have it fed back to them and executed right away. So, you know, real-time computing plus personal interactivity. Those experiments led to a computer called the TX0 that was still rather large, but smaller than some mainframes, and it was interactive. It was a truly interactive real-time computer where you were one person was uh, directly inputting and getting feedback immediately from the computer. These experiments formed the basis of Kindles and then going off to establish the Digital Equipment Corporation with uh, co-worker Harlan Anderson which uh, is an organization that has come up a few times in our work. And digital ended up 
refining the TXO even more, shrinking it down and creating the first in their line of PDP computers, the PDP-1. Today, we would probably call the PDP-1 a mini-computer, which is that nebulous space between a full-size mainframe and uh, a personal microcomputer. At the time, there was no such thing as a mini-computer, so it was just considered a really, really, really dirt-cheap mainframe, essentially. But it was much smaller than the TX-0, and it had a FlexoWriter, which was kind of a custom typewriter, and you could type stuff on the FlexoWriter. It would run the code that you, you typed out, then you could type out a paper tape and run the paper tape through and have it immediately do stuff. It also had an optional display. Uh, as we talked about in the last episode, it was kind of like a vector display, except it was point plotting, because instead of drawing a point and then giving it a direction and a magnitude to keep drawing, you actually had to tell it each individual point that you wanted it to draw. So if you were drawing a line, you couldn't just draw a line. You drew a point, and then a point next to it, and then a point next to it, and then a point next to it, and you got a line. But very similar in terms of being higher resolution, like a vector display, because it's still not raster scan. You're still not scanning the entire screen every time you do something. So the PDP-1, there weren't that many of them sold. It was kind of the beginning of DEC moving towards its mini-computer business that would become so lucrative for it when it released the PDP-8 several years later. But they did donate one to MIT. Ken Olson and Harlan Anderson were MIT grads, and their company, Digital Equipment, was in Maynard, Massachusetts, which wasn't that far away from Cambridge, all things considered. They maintained a very close relationship with MIT. A lot of MIT students ended up working at DEC, and uh, there was a lot of coming and going between the two organizations. So they donated a PDP-1. Lincoln Laboratory had previously donated the TX-0. And now DEC donated a PDP-1 that sat right next door to it. And so it was the coming of this computer to MIT that set this whole chain of events in motion. And to understand why that is, you have to understand the concept of the hacker as it originally existed. There was a time when hacker did not denote somebody that was breaking into things that didn't belong to them and spreading viruses and all of that horribleness. We're not talking about the hacker in a hoodie with a drawn up and they're nefariously looking at this computer in this dark hood and their hands are out there typing away and somehow your bank account is stolen. Now, we're talking about the hacker that goes, you know, it would be cool if this thing that Joe made could do that. I wonder if I modify this thing and bring in this other piece of wire and these other circuits, it'll work better. <laughs> it does? And I can open my door? And it pets the cat? Fantastic. <laughs> That's right. And the term actually originates from MIT and from a group of students that were there. So a lot of the people that we had invited to our event at the Smithsonian were joined together as members of something called the Tech Model Railroad Club and or TMRC uh, for short, TMRC. As the name implies, what TMRC did is they maintained a gigantic model railroad in a building on campus just because they liked trains and stuff. Trains are awesome. So, of course, part of that is laying track, building cars, building scenery, sculpting, painting, gluing, etc. But you have to make the trains run, too. And that side of it was pure electrical engineering. They had a lot of surplus phone equipment, relays and switches and stuff. 
they constructed the elaborate layout underneath the track uh, in terms of how to how to control all of these trains as, as they move around the track. So that attracted a lot of individuals that were interested in electrical engineering and interested at poking things and seeing how they work and taking them apart and putting them back together. They created their own language. A lot of words that have entered the vernacular uh, started there. As far as I know, they were the ones that started calling a person that was kind of a stick in the mud and wanted to follow the rules instead of having fun with everybody else a tool. That came out of MIT. They called garbage cruft. That's where cruft comes from. And they called a particularly clever feat, particularly if it served no purpose other than to just prove that you could do it. They called that a hack. And so, of course, someone who performed a hack was a hacker. That's the original definition of hacker, and it comes right out of teamwork at MIT. So these students were introduced to the TX0, the predecessor computer at MIT, by a professor named Jack Dennis. This was actually one of the incredible highlights of the event that I was just at. So these guys, these space war guys, they're all in their late 70s, early 80s. Because the time frame we're talking about is people that were students in the 50s and early 60s, college students. Jack Dennis obviously is older than them because he was a professor. Now, he was not hugely older than them because he was a newly minted PhD, but he was still a few years older than him than them. He is still alive, and he actually came to our event as well. Did any of them have any idea that he was going to show up? So we had told some, at least some of them, I mean, they didn't know when they were like flying in. Mm -hmm. We had told at least some of them that there was a chance he was going to be there. I think we told all of them before the night of the event itself. And then he was actually late. So like the first time one of them, uh, Martin Gretz, made reference to him and was like, I think he's in the audience. And it was like, no, he's not in the audience. But then partway through the talk, um, he arrived. Uh, I don't know why he was held up. And... People noticed he was there, and so then he got a nice standing ovation, and then he was invited up on stage and actually stayed up there for the duration of the panel, and even you know interjected a few things here and there as well. So that was quite a special moment. I don't know exactly how old he is, but he must be in his late 80s. That was quite remarkable that we were able to have Professor Dennis there as well. So you have not just the creators there, but their mentor sort of in-house discussing the creation. Exactly. And none of this happens without Jack Dennis. So even a computer like uh, the TX0 or the PDP-1 that isn't part of the main computing component of MIT and which allows for personal interaction rather than having to go through a lab technician, even these computers were primarily for research, not for just random undergraduate students, which... uh, Most of these individuals were undergraduates. Uh, A couple of them were university employees and uh, one or two graduate students. But for the most part, undergraduate students, random undergraduates weren't just, you know, supposed to be able to walk up to them and, and necessarily start using them. But you see, Jack Dennis had been a programmer at Lincoln Labs while they were doing Whirlwind, which I mentioned previously, kind of the the world's first real-time computer. He found ways when when he was a student working there, a graduate student, I believe. He found ways to kind of bypass the operators and work directly with the machine. And because it was a real-time computer, it did have a a degree of interactivity to it. 
he found that obviously he could get so much more done when he didn't have to when he didn't have that middleman in between him. And even though a lot of it was just fooling around on the computer, he felt that there was value added by his experimentation on that whirlwind computer. So flash forward a few years here to 1958, early 1959, when he's a brand new professor and there's this brand new TX0 computer, or TIXO as they called it, he starts thinking to himself, student experimentation on these computers is really valuable. I know that from my own time, you know, on these computers. So I want a group of curious students poking around these computers because some of the most wonderful stuff happens, some of the most wonderful discoveries are made when you just have curious people poking around a system like that. And you see, he had been a member of Tech Model Railroad Club, too, when he was an undergrad, because he did all his degrees at MIT, undergrad, master's, PhD, all at MIT. And he was a member of Teamwork. So he knew that there was this organization of people who enjoyed fiddling around with things like that. So he reached out to them and said, hey, we've got this uh, computer. And if you guys want to learn how to program on this computer, I can help arrange that and we'll arrange it so that you can do stuff on these computers when no other official work's going on. Because back in those days, the act of powering up and powering down a computer was so kind of intensive. (laughs) Not to mention fraught with peril. Yes, that you generally left the computers running all the time unless you were, you know, taking them offline for maintenance or whatever. Uh, It was just easier that way. You know, this Tixo was going to be in the computer lab and was going to be on whether anyone was using it or not. So if there's periods of time where no one is using it, why not have some curious students kind of play around with it? I mean, students that he trusts, students that he thinks will be responsible with the equipment, but the experimentation can only help everybody. And so, you know, Jack Dennis is the one that brought a lot of these guys in. This would be most of the implementer crowd rather than the conceptual crowd. So the people I'm talking about primarily in regards to space war, there were a few other people as well, were Bob Saunders, Dan Edwards, Steve Piner, Peter Sampson, and uh, Alan Kotok. Uh, Alan Kotok, unfortunately, is no longer with us. He died just over a decade ago. So he was the one person that had something to do with space war that we were not able to have with us in Washington, D.C. But all those other guys I just mentioned, Saunders, Piner, Edwards, Sampson, those four guys were all there as part of our event. And we interviewed all of them except for Sampson, who'd previously been interviewed. We interviewed all of them separately and, you know, learn more about their stories. So that's kind of the background. This is what's going on on the MIT computers in this time period, by which I mean the very late 1950s, early 1960s, 59, 60, 61, kind of this time period. They're mostly creating frivolous programs, but they're interesting programs. I mean, they're doing things that no one's done before. Peter Sampson, who was very into Baroque music, created a music program that you could actually program the little speaker on the Tixo to actually play music. May well be the first synthesizer. I mean, I don't want to go there. That isn't my field. But, you know, synthesizers, you know, your early Moog synthesizers and whatnot were later than 1959, 1960. So if it was not the first synthesizer, it was amongst the first. And it just had a single channel and and could just do beeps. So, I mean, it was never going to be like a commercial synthesizer program or anything. 
that's what I mean by frivolous. But at the same time, Peter Sampson's the first guy that proved that you could play music with a computer, essentially, (laughs) or at least one of the very first, if not the first. There was a calculator program. Uh, Another student, Robert Wagner, who was not part of the Space War thing, so we didn't interview him, he created a calculator program, which, again, yeah, every computer today has a calculator, right? (laughs) Built in, if it's running Windows, at least. You Linux guys may not have a calculator. I don't know. I think they do. It's just a little harder to get to. (laughs) Isn't it always? (laughs) But yes, um, you know, everyone that's running Windows or, (laughs) or Mac OS has a calculator within reach. But the thought of that at the time, in the early 1960s, that would be unfathomable because you didn't run programs in real time. So, you know, that was that was kind of a first. They did a Roman to Arabic numeral convert. Just takes Roman numerals and converts them into Arabic numerals and vice versa. I mean, frivolous stuff, but when you consider that this is the first time you could really have control of a computer in this kind of personal, intimate way, even the frivolous like that becomes somewhat monumental. The Tixo also did host something of a game. It was not created by these guys. But this was a period of time that if you had a computer like this, you wanted to be able to show that computer to other people because computers were very new. Just watching a computer run a random program in those days would be an incredibly boring thing. You're just going to see some blinking lights. You're going to see some tape whirring, but you're not going to see really any action. So a lot of computers came to host simple games as demo programs because it gave you something interesting to interact with or to watch happening. And then they can say, look how amazing our computer is. So a couple of faculty members, uh, Doug Ross and John Ward, did make a sort of game on the Tixo as a demonstration program called Mouse. They uh, promulgated it in January of 1959, and it was a maze program. You created a maze on the screen. There was a light pin with the Tixo. Project Sage was actually where the light pin was invented. You drew squares or removed lines from squares on a grid to fashion a maze. You placed cheese in various parts of the maze, and then a mouse would attempt to run the maze. Uh, The mouse had a limited amount of energy, and the food, the cheese, would replenish that energy. So the mouse had to get from cheese to cheese to cheese to exit without running out of energy. That part of the program was entirely automated. You just, you designed the maze and you placed the objects, and then the mouse tried to run the maze. And you see, it was an adapted learning program. That was kind of the demo part, showing what could potentially be done with AI. Because every time the mouse ran a maze, the same maze, you know, without changing anything, it kind of remembered how many steps it took to get to here and to here and to here and to here, and would try to optimize that in each subsequent run-through and become more efficient so it could get through everything without running out of energy. It wasn't much of a game. But it was a very sound demonstration program, and it was graphical. It was taking place on the display because the Tixo had one, too. So there was already kind of this idea that if you had a computer, and particularly at MIT, if you had this computer, you wanted to have some kind of visually arresting thing, some kind of visually arresting program to put on that computer to show it off to other people. So fast forward then to 1961, when the PDP-1 is about to be delivered. We get a group of not students, but a group of university employees at MIT and Harvard that learn that this is coming and want to do something special with it. That's the first phase of space war. This phase is 
three guys, Steve Russell, Wayne Wheatonen, and Martin Gretz, all three of whom were at our Smithsonian event. And you see, Wayne Wheatonen, as we'll see, never had anything to do with any of the teamwork guys or any actual computer programming at MIT. So that's why, literally, these seven guys had never been in a room together before, because Wayne Wheatonen hadn't even met most of these people before. But Wayne and Martin had become good friends when they were MIT students in the 50s. So they're, they're a little older. This is kind of the older end of the crowd. They came to MIT in 1954. They both would have graduated in 1957, but neither one actually ended up graduating. Wayne was just a few courses short. He was like two courses and a senior thesis away, and he just never got around to finishing them. Martin was a chemistry major. It turned out that chemistry wasn't really entirely his strong suit, so there were just a couple of classes that he ended up not being able to get through. So, uh, interestingly, they both ended up being dropouts, but, you know, a dropout from MIT is still a uh, far sight smarter than <laughs> than your average bear. <laughs> MIT has always been one of these places that deliberately accepts large classes and then pits everyone against each other until they failed out a lot. I think the classic look to your left, look to your right, two of you won't be here speech that is so generically associated with universities, I think kind of the germ of that kind of legend comes out of MIT specifically. In fact, uh, Wayne actually did go back to school much later and ended up getting a PhD in I forget what, but the point is, don't let their dropout status in any way <laughs> fool you. These are some really smart cookies. Wayne was the one that got involved with computers. He had a scholarship for his freshman year to MIT, and then he needed a, a work-study job after that. Tuition was going up. Can you believe it? They were going to raise the tuition from like $300 to like $600. At MIT, I'm willing to go right now. <laughs> per semester, it was going to go up to $600, Jeff. All right. I don't know about you, but I'll pay $600 to go to MIT right now. Yes. Well, you can't anymore. <laughs> Inflation, man. <laughs> so he needed a job and he ended up getting a job with Datamatic Corporation which was a joint venture between, uh, I want to say, Raytheon and Honeywell. Raytheon being a defense contractor, Honeywell being uh, an early computer company. I thought they were just a thermostat company. Well, that's how they started. I mean, when I say they're an early computer company, Honeywell got its start as a thermostat company and is still a thermostat company. But they were one of the so-called seven dwarves that followed IBM into the computer business in the 1950s and got their clocks thoroughly clean. They exited the business eventually. So that's why we don't see a Honeywell computer. We still see Honeywell thermostats. Exactly. Exactly. He started learning how to program in like 1955 or so was when he got his first computer job, which is very early to get a computer job. Very few computers in the world in 1955. So he kind of immersed himself in that and, and fell in love with programming and, and absolutely uh, adored doing that. That, Like so many of the hackers, he was not part of the hacking scene, but like so many of the hackers... You know, it's like once they discovered computers and discovered that they could bend the machine to their will and poke at this and poke at that and discover new and interesting ways to interact with it, that took priority over things like classwork and social lives and sleep and other Food. niceties. <laughs> right. I mean, obviously, there's still hackers like that today, but I mean, you know, to be there at the dawn of it, you know, I mean, to be there when... Nobody even knew what a computer was and then discover not only that there's a computer, but you can make it do things. 
That's that's pretty heady stuff if you're a 20 something <laughs> kid, right? Yeah, pretty much. There's a whole bunch of kids in college today who go, ooh, I like the computer. It does the thing. I can do all the video games on it. Food, social life, showers. What's that? <laughs> pretty much, right? He ended up pulling Wayne into computers then as well. They were rooming together after school. They were in a men's cooperative uh, together for a while called Old Joe Clark's. This is something that really doesn't exist in society anymore. But back in those days, or, or so I'm told, by our oral history participants who were explaining this all to us, I didn't know this really, this part of it really until we had them there and they were giving some of their background. If you were a young man, never a woman, <laughs> there were not women's cooperatives. But if you were a young man and you were unattached, unmarried, and you were kind of out in the real world, but not ready to be a full responsible adulting person, you didn't necessarily have to go downtown and get the seedy apartment all by yourself with just you and the rats. You could actually find a a men's cooperative where a group of men went in on a building together, a co-op, and you know each pay uh, have a share in the organization and pay for like renting or owning or whatever the building and uh, live the life of a of a bachelor for a while longer in an almost dorm like environment sort of a tamer version of a fraternity right and for young men that are out of school and whatnot so they roomed together at a men's cooperative called old joe clarks then after a while they moved into an apartment together at number 8 Hingham Street in Cambridge. That'll become important as we go along here. So, you know, they were very good friends, and they were living together for a time, all 100% totally platonic. They weren't living together with quotes around it. Um, They were just really good friends. Martin, Martin Gretz, needed a job because the chemistry thing wasn't working out for him. I mean, he dropped out. He didn't have his chemistry degree. He was trying to make a living as a chemistry tech, which didn't require a degree, but in his own words, I mean, he said it himself at the thing, so I don't feel bad saying this, he just wasn't a particularly good chemist. So Wayne got him a job at his most recent computer facility, had long moved on from from Datamatic at this point, uh, which was the Litauer Statistical Laboratory at Harvard University. And he got Martin a job as a junior operator, because these were batch processing machines, That basically just meant that he would feed the cards into the machine, and if something got caught in the machine, he'd clean it out and try to unmangle it. I mean, it's it's the lowest rung, really, in the facility, but he found his calling then, too. I mean, you know, he wasn't a very good chemist, but it turns out he knew a thing or two about computers and programming, so he learned how to program while he was there. You know, all on his own, he kind of started self-teaching himself how these machines work. That's Wayne and Martin. Then you have Steve Russell the one who I identified as the linchpin previously. Uh, At the event, he was the biggest talker. I would say Martin Gretz was probably the second biggest talker. Martin Gretz kind of took it upon himself to be the historian of the group. Back in 1981, he wrote an article for Creative Computing, I think, but it was, yeah, I think it was Creative Computing for David All. Uh, He wrote an article on the history of space war where he got back in touch with everybody. This was only 20 years after the fact got in touch with everybody and kind of ran by what they remembered about this and that and then then made an article about it. So he was also a pretty big talker, but Steve was definitely the biggest talker. He's the linchpin that holds these groups together because he was everywhere. He roomed at old Joe Clark's as well. 
So he met Wayne and Martin through old Joe Clark's and they became friends. He worked at MIT. He had gone to school at Dartmouth and ironically, he also failed to graduate. He didn't complete his senior thesis. He had all his coursework done, but he never got around to doing a senior thesis. So the three guys who made this incredibly important first video game of any importance, all three of them, I, I think it's interesting, are, are college dropouts. Uh, I mean, all very, very smart people. And like I said, in some cases, even went back to school later and finished up a degree, but all college dropouts. He was working at MIT in the AI lab. The AI lab was in the same building just down the hall from where the TXO and PDP-1 computers were. After a couple of years, he was so busy working in the AI lab on the programming language Lisp when he first got there that he wasn't really paying attention. But in 1960, he started noticing what was going on down the hall, met Alan Kotok and Peter Sampson and all of these guys. And then he had been interested in model trains since he was like three years old. So then he learned about the Tech Model Railroad Club and he joined Teamwork. Ironically, even though he was a computer guy, he never really did any hacking with the Teamwork guys on like the TXO computer. He didn't get involved in that. His day job was enough programming. You know how that can be. You're programming all day and then what? Program in my spare time? No. Yeah, it's sort of the conceit of if you do something as your day job, you almost don't want to touch it when you get home because you're just sort of like, I've been overexposed to this thing and I don't want to deal with it anymore. Exactly. So he was a member of Teamwork and he was doing some of the train stuff and he got to know all of those people. But, you know, he wasn't doing really any programming on the Tixo. You see, he's the linchpin because we've got the Wayne, Martin, Steve group over here. And then we've got the Teamwork group over here, which you can't see. But trust me, I'm actually gesturing in a different spot. This is true. <laughs> and Steve is the one guy that's in between the two of them. And then Steve gets burned out on Lisp and working for John McCarthy at the AI lab. So then Steve goes to Harvard as well and gets a job. Uh, I think he was at Litauer for a while, and then he may have gone on to another department there, but he was working at Harvard. So Martin, Wayne, and Steve are all at Harvard. Martin ends up being dismissed from Litauer. They just, they don't need him anymore as a junior program operator. I mean, he knows a lot more about computers now, but didn't translate into a promotion or more work at Harvard. So he needs a new job. Well, Martin Greats, it's, it's all these connections. You could do one of those conspiracy theory string things. You really could. Martin Greats had never been a member of Teamwork at MIT. Neither had Wayne Wheatonen. But Martin Greats knew Jack Dennis because Jack Dennis had been the sponsor of the Science Fiction Club at MIT. And Martin Greats was really into science fiction. He even though he tries to deny it today because, in his own words, it was absolutely wretched, he had actually gotten a, a story published in, in a magazine once. Now, this was in either the late 50s or the early 60s at the very end of the relevance of the pulp magazines. That's where people like Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov got their start was publishing in the pulps. But by the late 50s, that world was kind of dead and everything had moved to novels. And so some of the pulps that were still around were, were desperate to take anything just to keep circulation going. So in Martin's own words, 
it wasn't because his story was any good. It's just that the magazine needed stories and he submitted The competition one. was so bad. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, he was really into science fiction. He was been a member of the science fiction club. So he knew Jack Dennis. He knew Jack Dennis was working at the uh, research laboratory for electronics at MIT, where all of these computers were. So he calls up Dennis and says, hey, I need a job. And he was like, I'll give you a job. And it was creating uh, like a diagnostic program or something like that for a tape drive on the TX-0. So now Martin, just as Steve is leaving MIT for Harvard, Martin is leaving Harvard for MIT. And he's actually directly working on the TIXO as a university employee. And so he's meeting these teamwork folk and he's becoming aware of the hacking going on on this computer. So these different groups of people are starting to all intersect with each other in different ways. So fast forward to the PDP-1 once again. Everyone knew the PDP-1 was coming before it actually arrived. There was a lot of great anticipation for it. I don't know who learned of it first. It's, it's really not important. Steve could have very well learned about it because even though he was now a Harvard employee, not an MIT employee, he still kind of hung around the building a lot. He had friends there, and there were cool computers to program on there. Yay! Of course, Martin's there. And Martin is rooming with Wayne at Hingham Street. So Wayne is still connected with what's going on there. And so whether it's Steve who learns of it or Martin who learns of it, they learn that this computer's going to come, and they learn that it's going to have this great display on it. Being the computer enthusiasts they are, they immediately decide that they need to figure out what to do with this computer. So they convene the Hingham Institute Study Group for Space Warfare. Hmm. Which is basically three guys in their apartment. They lived at uh, 8 Hingham Street. It was just a rundown tenement building. Not very fashionable. Martin and Wayne jokingly named it the Hingham Institute because MIT is known as the Institute because it's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And so they wanted to add a little bit of pomposity to their own living situation and dubbed it the Hingham Institute. And so the Hingham Institute Study Group for Space Warfare, or whatever they called it, you can look it up, was just the three of them kind of having fun and kicking ideas around. There's a lot of confusion about the relationship of these three guys and where they were and what they were doing. Most histories of space war call Steve Russell an MIT student. Wrong, 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 wrong. He was never, ever a student at MIT. He was a Dartmouth student that failed to graduate and then got a job at MIT. Distinction there. Job, i.e. employee, not student, i.e. giving them money. He's taking money away. Exactly. One of the lucky few. Yeah, he was not a student. He was probably also not at MIT. So there's, there's some confusion on this as well. I mean, even as an employee anymore. You know, at some point he moved from MIT to Harvard. I mean, that's known. Earlier sources from closer period in time definitely seem to indicate that he was working at Harvard during the entire time Space War was created. He doesn't really remember his own employment history that well, like in terms of days and months and stuff. I mean, he knows where he worked. His, his mind is fine. But, you know, 50 years later, you know, now was I there February 62 or what? You know, it's just like, yeah, he's had a lot of jobs since then, right? Mm-hmm. 
he usually, the way they usually tell it, and the way that they told it to us in our oral histories as well, is that he was in the AI lab at, at MIT when all of this was going on. That's probably not true, even though it's coming straight from them. There, there are other sources, and including deposition testimony from back in the uh, 1970s, that indicates that by the time all of this was going on, he had left MIT and was at Harvard. And was at Harvard throughout this period. I, does it make much of a difference in the grand scheme of life? Not really, but this is our podcast, so we want to get anal about the details. That's our business. Or at least we try to be as accurate as we possibly can be. That's the flattering way to put it. I like that. The Alex is brash and direct. I'm just a quiet one who brings flowers and kitty cats to the situation. <laughs> sure. There are kitty cats, at least. Not that they're allowed in the recording room. Nope. <laughs> Anywho. So it's these two guys at Harvard and this guy at MIT all getting together because there's a new computer coming to MIT and they want to do something with it. There's a few threads and they each tell it a little differently, which is fine. Uh, it's all 50 plus years ago. Kind of the traditional telling that Greats first promulgated in his article in 1981, 1982, was that they were just sitting around and they decided that a truly effective demonstration program, because they were thinking in terms of demonstration program, had to be visually interesting and non-repetitive. Different things happening, unpredictability at different times. And that there should probably be something pleasurable or enjoyable about interacting with the demo. Because this is all just about maximizing appeal. You don't want people to get bored. Yeah, so that was kind of the foundation. According to the article, and remember Martin talked to everybody for this article. According to the article, it was Wayne that said, why don't we make it a competition? Why don't we make it a kind of race or a kind of fight or something like that? Some sort of versus mode. Exactly. Just again, to make it as engaging and thought-provoking as possible. All three of them were science fiction fans. They were particularly enamored with the books uh, of an author named E.E. E. Smith, who wrote primarily in the 1920s and 1930s. He wrote these kind of big space operas. He was kind of the George Lucas of his day, I guess you could say, though he wasn't in movies, he was in books. It was these big good versus evil empires and plucky heroes down on their luck, always odds against them, pulling things out at the last minute, kind of space operas with romance and betrayal and twists and turns, and not a very good writer of dialogue, but a good enough plotter that he kept things moving and kept it interesting. I mean, he's, he's someone that's completely fallen out. I mean, nobody remembers E.E. E. Smith anymore. If he ever comes up, it's always in the context of inspiring space war, I think. It's not like he had the staying power of the next generation of authors like Clark and Asimov and Heinlein and Bradbury and all those guys. So they all loved those books. And so the idea of kind of a space competition of ships shooting at each other in space kind of immediately appealed. So when Wayne says, what if we made it some kind of competition, like a race or a fight, the others are immediately like, oh yeah, space combat. Certainly, this was also the period of time when uh, the space race was in the news, and the Russians had put a man in orbit, and 
the Americans were about to put a man in orbit. So space was on everyone's mind and technology races and all of that were also on everyone's mind. The one area where there's some disagreement in the rememberings, and this is interesting because I'd never heard this before. Steve Russell, and I'd never heard this before we had interviewed him. Now, I was not present for the interview that we did on the West Coast. I was present for all of these interviews. But I, I read the transcript of his other interview. And the one thing that he said there that I'd never seen before, and he said this at our event too, he thought it was important that the demo also be educational in some way. So this has never been said before. I don't know if it's a false memory or, or not. Martin chimed in at one point to say that he didn't remember that being one of the things that drove them. So who knows? I mean, this is always going to be a bit of Rashomon when you get that many people. Memory is an imperfect creature, especially after so many years. But it's possible that there was also a desire to be educational. And the way that Steve Russell frames it is that the way they wanted to make it educational is space is in the news. The space race is in the news. Let's show the people what it's like, sort of, to try to maneuver a spaceship in space. So they made a decision, whether it was for educational reasons or just because they thought it would enhance the demo. They decided in these very early meetings as well that they would emulate real physics as much as they possibly could. Now, they didn't end up doing completely 100% accurate physics because as with anything else, practicalities of gameplay comes in. So, you know, like you can rotate your ship as you're moving. You don't need to fire booster rockets in an opposite direction to get your ship to move. You know, they took a few liberties, but it's basically Newtonian physics. I mean, you're moving in a direction and you keep moving in that direction until a force exerted in a different direction moves you in that direction, in another direction, very much obeying with, uh, with Newton's laws there. So they have this germ of an idea, and, and Wayne remembers it taking place literally over tea on a single afternoon. They hashed out basically everything. Um, I think Martin says that, you know, it was a couple of weeks. Uh, could be that they had the initial kind of inspiration and did a lot of it in the first day, and then they just hashed it out a little more. Could be one's right, one's wrong. Who knows? But it came together very quickly, whether it was a, an afternoon or a couple of weeks. The idea was was together very quickly. We're going to have Space War, and it was Space War from the beginning. I mean, they basically had the name from the beginning. Two ships shooting at each other, obeying in as much as is practicable the laws of physics. That's your game. That's the basics of Space War. And they were all going to work on it to one degree or another. But as it turns out, Wayne gets called up to active military service. Uh, this was pre-Vietnam, but even in the, the 50s, there was still universal conscription. Uh, well, I mean, not everyone was conscripted, so that might be the wrong way to put it, but universal registration for the draft. Everyone had to register for the draft and people could be drafted. This was before our all-volunteer army. Wayne and Martin had learned that they were going to be drafted to act active duty about 1958, I think. So they decided to forestall that by entering the reserves together. So they were called up for their six months of training as artillery surveyors, but they never joined a unit and they were just placed in the reserves. Well, fast forward to 1961, and there's this little thing called the Berlin Wall crisis going on, or the Berlin crisis, rather, that leads to the erection of the Berlin Wall. So the U.S. military is on high alert. John F. Kennedy calls out 
several active units in the States to go over to Europe, and then reservists are called up to fill those slots back in the United States. Even though Wayne and Martin went in together, trained together, had the exact same job specialty together, Martin does not get called up, but Wayne does. Wayne gets called up to replace a a guy that went overseas. So he's out of the picture then. I mean, his army service doesn't last that long, but it lasts long enough that he is no longer around to have anything to do with space war. And so that's why Wayne is cut out of the story at this point. But he's really one of the key guys because he's the one, at least according to Martin in his article, he's the one that said, let's make it a competition. I mean, they might have come around to that, obviously, without him as well. But the point is, he's the one that said it. Let's make it a competition. So he's hugely important. Definitely the germination point. Exactly. But then he doesn't get to do any programming on it. He has to leave. Martin, by this point, has changed jobs because he was just on kind of a temporary job with Jack Dennis doing this diagnostic program for the tape player. Once that job was done, he was gone. Um, Now, he still stayed at MIT, but he moved to a completely different lab at MIT in a completely different building. So he still took part in everything, but, you know, he wasn't hanging around as much. So kind of Slug, uh, which was Steve Russell's nickname, Slug was the one that was really available to actually kind of do this. I mean, he didn't work at MIT anymore, but he was there all the time. He knew the guys around the computer and everything. But the problem was he didn't want to do it. I mean, he thought it was a great idea. He just didn't want to program it. So we started talking it up. Oh, we've got this great idea for this program. It's called Space War and this, that, and that. And I really think someone should, like, program this because I think it would be really cool on this PDP-1. Inevitably, what would happen is someone would say, wow, that does sound cool. Someone should program it. Somebody that really knows the idea really well. Someone like, say, you, Slug, the guy who suggested it. (laughs) and he didn't want to do it i mean this is what he said in our interviews i mean not because i mean he liked the idea and everything he just he didn't want to be the guy that had to do it you know so he kept coming up with excuses i don't know how to do this i don't know how to do that i'm not sure i can make this work and one by one those were answered until uh the famous story which we'll repeat here goes that he said that he would need some sine and cosine routines for moving the ships around the screen. And he didn't know the first thing about sine and cosine routines. So, uh, can't do it. Whole thing falls apart without that. So Alan Kotok, uh, the one that unfortunately has passed on and wasn't with us, he's as anxious as all these other guys to finally see this thing happen. So he's basically like, okay, fine. So he drives to Maynard, Digital Equipment's headquarters. Goes in there, you know, he knows people there. As I said, there's a lot of interchange between them. Goes in, finds some sign, some just bog standard PDP-1 sine and cosine routines that someone at deck did. Drives back, places them in front of Steve and says, okay, now what's your excuse? He was now out of excuses. So he actually programmed it or took the lead in programming the initial version. Another interesting thing on kind of the places where memory can fail. So the PDP-1 has this point plotting display, as we discussed, but it's an optional display. Not every PDP-1 came with one of these displays. Uh, It was add-on hardware. Everyone that we asked, and we asked them all this specifically, pretty much everyone that we asked remembered the computer and the display coming at the same time. 
that they were delivered at the same time and hooked up at the same time. We know for a fact, and this is because of the depositions back in the 70s, John McKenzie, who was kind of the technical guy responsible for making sure that the computer was kept running, John McKenzie was called to testify in some of the Magnavox patent suits because Space War was one of the games that was being considered as, as to whether it was prior art that invalidated the Magnavox patents. So he came to testify, and he brought with him the official logbooks from the electronics laboratory. So this is, you know, sign-ins and sign-outs and notes about when stuff happened, all the official primary source record of everything that went on. And then he testified as to its contents because he was the keeper of these books, so he could testify. The computer came in, like, October. The display was not hooked up until December. We know this uh, for a fact because... Unless the documents were forged, I guess. But, you know, they all remember it being there at the same time. So the fact of the matter is, he couldn't have really started it any earlier than he did anyway, because when he finally got around to saying, okay, fine, I'll do it, the display had just been installed. So he puts the whole thing together, and that's where the famous kind of hacking mentality comes into play. You had just a few points of light kind of representing stars. Peter Sampson sees that and is like, well, that's no good. Those don't look like real stars at all. I mean, in terms of position and intensity and everything. Just talking dots. So he went and he created an accurate star chart that he called Expensive Planetarium that was then incorporated into the program. Not only did it have all of these stars in the right places, but they were at the proper intensity relative to Earth as well. So I told you this was a point-plotting display which meant that every single individual point has to be drawn. So if you refresh some points more often than you refresh other points, you'll end up with some points looking brighter than other points on the display because they've been refreshed more recently. So he figured out a way to time the plotting of all the points so that their relative intensity to each other was the same as their relative intensity if you were looking up at the night sky. And only space nerds make sure that the star charts are accurate. <laughs> That's right. That's what hackers do. They see something that's not right, and they take it upon themselves to make it better or fix it or improve it. <laughs> yep. It's really fascinating the kind of error that most of us would just shrug off as, who cares? My hat's off to them and their dedication where they can go, nope, if we do this, 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 and this, we can have it be scientifically accurate, and it looks better. That's right. So why not? The other kind of big contribution, and there were other contributions too, but the other really big one was Dan Edwards. Dan Edwards is a kind of interesting guy. I didn't, I didn't realize this, but I learned this when I was researching. I didn't learn it at the event, but I learned it in my research for the event. Dan Edwards, after he got out of school, you know, this, this is a period of time where he's at MIT as a, as a graduate student now. He'd been an undergraduate there, member of Teamwork, and then became a graduate student working in the AI lab. So he worked with Steve Russell. Steve Russell was there as an employee Edwards was there as a student intern or student employee, but they worked together on Lisp. And he's still there. He stayed at MIT until about 1967 in various capacities. Then he went and joined the NSA and was very involved in early cybersecurity. And he is actually the gentleman that first used the term Trojan horse to describe a particular type of malicious computer program. Pretty impressive. But before that, he was a budding young graduate student that was immersed in this hacking scene, was hanging around as all of this was going on. And back in the days, you know, it had these stars. So I don't know 
I'm not exactly sure about the timeline in terms of whether Expensive Planetarium was in at this point or not, but whether it was Expensive Planetarium or just the original kind of random stars that, that Steve Russell had in it, there was one star that was kind of in the middle of the screen and was kind of blinking pretty brightly. And he was looking at that and was like, you know, that star looks like it's near the action, like stuff's happening right around that star. That star should really exert gravity on the spaceships. And so he kind of maybe says that to Steve Russell, and Steve Russell's basically like, you know, that's a great idea, but man, that's beyond me. Because that, that's a pretty advanced piece of programming at that point. But Russell's like, but yeah, go ahead and go ahead and do that if you think it would be cool. So Edwards has a, a particular challenge. And there's often some confusion in this, and I readily admit that I sometimes say this wrong in casual conversation, too. So what Edwards found when he tried to go and do this is that he was running out of processor time. He didn't have the time he needed to do it. So much was happening in every cycle that the computer could not handle anymore in a cycle. So it couldn't calculate gravity in a cycle. This is often portrayed, and again, I've said this wrong too, this is often portrayed as him running out of memory, that there wasn't memory left to add the features. Space War did not actually use all of the memory on the PDP-1. There was actually a decent chunk of leftover memory. But what it did use was all of the processing capability of the computer. So it wasn't a matter of space, it was a matter of time. Or speed, to be more (laughs) accurate. Yes. So if he was going to put this feature in, he would have to figure out a way to free up processing power. And so the technical part of this, again, I'm not a technical person, but essentially the ships, the two ships that were fighting each other, were being redrawn every single cycle, being re-rendered. And that's what was taking a good chunk of the time, was drawing those ships. What Dan Edwards did was basically invent the world's first just-in-time compiler. Now, like I said, I'm not really that technical a person, so I, I can't really describe what a just-in-time compiler is. It's been a while since I've had my computer science courses, but in a sense, the just-in-time compiler just takes the code as it is and interprets it straight up. Typically, your standard program, at least in the classical sense, you take your code, your C code, your C++ code, and that's compiled from the language into an object that is to say machine code that is then what's interpreted in order to then make your executable so you sort of got multiple steps there a just-in-time compiling means that as the code is running we're doing all that steps from that point we're not pre-compiling doing all the calculations beforehand we're doing those calculations as it's running if I recall correctly, and I could be wrong because I don't, can't look it up at the moment. No worries. Java, which is a popular programming language, I think is largely a just-in-time compiling situation. Yeah, so I, I do know that kind of the upside of this is that instead of every processing cycle, the ships having to be completely redrawn, they were basically just done once. They were like compiled at the very beginning uh, when you ran the program. And then you didn't have to keep constantly refiguring them every single cycle. That would be pre-compiled then. Sort of. But like I said, I don't know the technical stuff, but Chris Weaver knows his technical stuff very well. And (laughs) 
he, he and Dan Edwards were referring to it as essentially the world's first just-in-time compiler. So, okay. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't claim to know exactly why. That's not where my uh, expertise is. Exactly. So that freed up the time that he needed, the processing uh, speed he needed in order to have the central star exert gravity. And that's what really made the game. It completely changed the game. Before that, it was kind of aimless. You were, could kind of zip across the screen, and it, it did have the Newtonian physics. It's not like there was no physical model at all, but you could kind of just move everywhere, and you're just zipping around, and there's not much strategy to it. It's sort of like a multiplayer asteroid with just two ships. Right, exactly. You know, where's the fun in that? Because after all, in asteroids, it's the fact that there's lots of things flying around that make it interesting. But by putting that sun in the middle and its gravity, you had something exerting a pole right in the middle of the screen. And it's something that you could slingshot around. It was something you had to be careful you didn't get drawn into and pulled into the sun. It added a strategic layer to what was going on. And so uh, Space War probably doesn't end up being nearly so fun without that. It ends, I mean, look at computer space, uh, you know, the, the Nolan Bushnell version. The fact that it was one player was part of the reason it was weak, but it had the physics, but it didn't have the sun. Uh, it's just you and a hardware-controlled saucers kind of zooming around the screen, and it, it, it just doesn't work as well. So that was the Dan Edwards contribution, and it was significant. The other major feature was created by Martin Gretz. Martin Gretz, even though he didn't take on the main programming, he created the hyperspace function for the game. One of the people, which may have been Martin, May have been someone else. I, I can't remember now. It's, it's all been recorded, thankfully. Kind of uh, identified hyperspace as a play balancing feature. So what hyperspace did is you could press a button or flip a switch on the PDP-1, and you would immediately disappear from the spot you're currently at and reappear at a random spot on the map, on the screen. The way this was characterized by at least some people was that after a couple of players got really skilled and could really kind of kill everybody really quickly. It got harder to kind of get new people acclimated to the game. So having an escape for an inexperienced player, I mean, obviously experienced players could use it too, but having an escape for inexperienced players to get to another part of the screen kind of helped with the learning curve and helped get them out of tight spots as they were just learning how everything worked. But then they didn't want the entire game to just be hyperspacing all the time whenever you're in danger because then that takes a lot of the fun out of it instead of a tense one-on-one -on -one duel it's one player constantly running away from the other player so it was set to fail like after you use it three or four times your ship will blow up when you use it and you know interesting how they were thinking in terms of game balancing even at this early date uh, between new players and and veteran players that's really the big features. So uh, there's two guys we haven't mentioned, Bob Saunders and Steve Piner. They were invited there because they are listed amongst the group of people that were involved with creating the game, but their roles weren't necessarily as well known. I mean, we know Edwards did the gravity. We know that Samson did the star chart. We know Greats did hyperspace. We know Wheaton and was involved in conceiving it. We didn't exactly know Saunders and Piner, and we actually learned that that they did less than has been reported, which in no way invalidated them being there. It was still great to have them and get them on the record. Levy and Hackers says that Saunders helped code the game with Russell. That's not true. <laughs> Russell indicates that 
they did play the game a lot together. They did play test the game a lot together. So Saunders was kind of involved in balancing the game, I guess, in that sense, though how much of their playtesting was just them playing it a lot for fun and then tweaking it as opposed to a conscious effort to playtest, I don't know. He did create the controls for the game. That's the big thing he did. So the game was originally played flicking toggle switches on the PDP-1. Well, that has a couple of problems. First, the monitor on the PDP-1 is not in the middle of the computer. It's off to one side. So if you're using the switches on the same side as the monitor, you may have a slight advantage. But the bigger thing was the switches were kind of up high on the machine and you're resting your elbows on the desk that the computer's on and that gets old after a while. Poor elbows. So he went and he scrounged up some parts from the Tech Model Railroad Club stores because they had a lot of spare parts, and he fashioned a couple of custom control boxes for people to use with levers to move forward, reverse, and rotate, and buttons to fire things, and, and all of that. Most sources say that Saunders and Alan Kotok did those together. I think my blog still says that because I haven't updated it for anything that I learned at the event. But it was actually Saunders himself. Kotok had nothing to do with making the controllers. So that was Saunders' big thing. We know that the controls were added in March. And again, we know that because of the McKenzie testimony. We know the exact day that they were first hooked up to the machine. And apparently, I was curious. I I wanted to know, was it a big deal adding new hardware like that? Or did they just wire it in and people were like, yeah, sure, whatever. And apparently it was the latter. It's not like they had to jump through hoops or get special permission. Or It was just like, okay, cool. Now there's control boxes for Space War. (laughs) Pinard ends up didn't really do anything with Space War. I mean, he was part of the, the hacking group. He was part of the group hanging around. He certainly played Space War. But it turns out he really didn't have anything much to do with it. The the one cool thing that he did do, and it was useful for creating Space War, is he created a program called Expensive Typewriter that allowed, instead of entering commands into the computer using the FlexoWriter, which is kind of cumbersome, you could actually use the computer to type up a piece of paper tape Uh, that you could then run through. So it was kind of a word processor. It wasn't really WYSIWYG. Uh, You know, what you see is what you get. Uh, Because there's no monitor or anything. But it allowed you to go back and kind of edit text in real time. Uh, Just like on typewriter, you could jump up to a previous line. You could delete stuff and change stuff. It was all paper tape, but it was essentially a typing program word processor. And this made it a lot easier to program the machine than just using the FlexoWriter. So expensive typewriter was used in a lot of the coding of Space War, is my understanding. So in that sense, Piner contributed. It turns out he wasn't actually as directly involved in anything as the others. So most of his contribution in in oral histories and in our panel was really about expensive typewriter, and that's fine, because that was pretty uh, key to everything as well and kind of a landmark thing. So kind of the basic game was done by kind of February, early March, the whole gravity thing. Uh, And the controls were kind of added later in March. Hyperspace was added in May. It was kind of the final feature put in. And then they debuted it at the MIT Open House. That was kind of the first public debut of it in May. It was uh, very popular. And, uh, of course, from there, it it spread slowly but surely to the wider world, some of which we talked about in, in some of our Atari and Galaxy game episodes and all of that. I mean, we've kind of already talked about a lot of the programs that were influenced by Space War from uh, the very founding of Atari with Computer Space on through to Asteroids and 
Star Control in 1990 was a version of, essentially a version of Space War. So incredibly influential game and great that we were able to, for the first time, bring all of these people together and not only get their full stories on the record, but let them speak to an assembled group of the public and other pioneers in the field and, uh, you know, kind of publicly get their story out there as well. Uh, Polygon, Kotaku, Ars Technica and Variety all sent reporters. At the time of this recording, the Variety and Kotaku articles have come out hoping the Polygon and Ars Technica will have come out by the time that this episode is actually being listened to. What, you mean the entire thing with the whole glasses and the uh, New Year's thing was just a front? No. Aw, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was a great event and hopefully the first of many. I mean, this... This is a journey that uh, Chris Weaver and myself and the Smithsonian and the production crew and everyone else involved, we're still kind of at the beginning of this journey. At least that's the hope. You have to keep funding coming in. You have to keep interest going. There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that I'm thankfully not involved in that has to keep moving forward to make anything like this happen. But the plan is to to cop, capture dozens more of, of these stories and have them you know, ultimately available for, for people who come to, to D.C. and the Museum of American History. So this is hopefully just the, the first of many events of this type and certainly serves as a good opportunity to highlight what is truly the first landmark, important, widely distributed, widely influential uh, computer game, that being Space War. Sounds good. Well, certainly throw as much links to all the stuff we discussed into the show notes. And hopefully by the time this episode airs, I'll have even more articles to throw in at you. That just leaves what do we talk about for the second episode of the new year of 2019. Well, for those of you who don't know, we, we do occasionally actually communicate with the people that listen to this podcast. It, it happens. What? Really? We do have a Twitter account. We don't tweet much other than that the new episode's gone live, but... I occasionally send something out. Yeah, I know, occasionally, but but it's there. And we also have a Patreon where people who think that we're doing something worthwhile can chip in a little bit to help us pay hosting costs, domain costs... Equipment uh, failures. Yeah, equipment failures, upgrade to new equipment, uh, etc., etc. If you like what you're seeing and you haven't stopped by the Patreon, uh, you, you might consider throwing a buck or two our way, though, of course, uh, as we've said in the past, this podcast is free and will remain free. Uh, we haven't really incentivized much yet, other than if you think we're doing a good job and want us to keep doing it. Yeah, I think our only Patreon-only thing at this point is I threw in the timeline that Alec put together for the Tetris episode. Sure. But uh, anyway, the point being, though, that we do interact with, with our listeners sometimes, and occasionally they even throw suggestions our way. And one suggestion we had recently from a person that Jeff will look up as he's editing this episode and interject at that point to put the name in. Virtuoso Engine. Or he'll just say it right now because he actually knows it. <laughs> <laughs> suggested that maybe we take a look at the whole so-called Sillywood era of video games. This is kind of the period in the early to mid-1990s where video games are becoming big enough entertainment properties that the traditional 
kind of movie studios and whatnot are starting to eye the industry very seriously because they think maybe they need to get involved in some of that money. And at the same time, you have the advent of kind of full motion video graphics where you're actually displaying filmed footage of actual people and can put that, compress that and put that into a computer program and make a game out of it is also coming in, which uh, whets Hollywood's appetite even more. So you get this period where everyone from Sony, which owns Columbia, to MGM, to Disney, to Fox, are all coming in and exploring whether they should be in video games. And you have some traditional video game companies getting closer to Hollywood by doing all this FMV stuff. And it's called Sillywood for two reasons. It's uh, Silicon Valley meets Hollywood, but it's also quite silly. And uh, it's kind I of... I mean, in- just look at Pepsi Man. <laughs> right, that's actually a few years later, but <laughs> yeah, that is definitely silly. So uh, we thought we'd take a look at this kind of quaint little era when FMV was the future and Disney was going to end up owning the whole video game industry and, and none of it ever quite turned out that way. All right, the Sillywood era now in FMV next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roll of Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.